You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. The focal passage today is found in Hosea 8. Um, If any of you need a Bible, there are some back there by the red tree. You can grab one. So Hosea 8, set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set princess, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made aff, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. This is the word of the Lord. You all can be seated, and children can be dismissed to their classes. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here uh, of the village. It's good to see you all this morning. Um, Man, uh, before we hop in, uh, let's just pray together. Father, thanks for, thanks for this people. Um, thank you for your word. Thanks for your spirit um, that is in us and with us this morning. Thanks for Jesus who is sitting on the throne and reigning over everything, including what's happening in this space right now. And God, thanks for being a good dad. Um, I just pray this morning that you would help us to reflect, uh, to examine our own hearts and the, the role that your voice has in our lives. Um, God, would you help us to be impressed by you more than anyone or anything else this morning? Would you let our lives be shaped by you, uh, not just in uh, 90 minutes on a Sunday morning, God, but throughout the week, through your word and through your spirit, through your people. Help us to be known by you and not by the works of our hands. And God, would you allow this people called the Village Church to be patient and slow and steady and committed to your ways that are good and for our good and the good of the world. 
We thank you so much for Jesus, and it's in his name that we... So, uh, over the summer, uh, our family took a, uh, a cave tour in Florida Cavern State Park that's near uh, Tallahassee. We didn't do any of the crazy, like, squeezing through a, a teeny tiny little gap or anything like that. I actually have a story about one of those things later. Uh, but we basically just kind of, like, stroll, like, strolled through a cave, and we had to duck a couple of times. That, that's kind of what that was like. Um, there's a picture, uh, if you want to throw that up on the screen... There, Chad. Hey, is evidence that we were there, at least our kids. Uh, it's not the bat cave. That blue light is like, that's LED added stuff or whatever. It's not ooze or some special gem down there. Um, that's just to make it look cool. Uh, but, but before we actually went down into uh, the caves, we, we had to hang out in a little museum that was just kind of all about uh, the park itself. And there was a section that talked about uh, how the caverns were made. And so I, I snapped a picture of one of the signs, and that's up here. Uh, it says, today, water levels are lower, leaving many of the cave passages dry. That's how we can walk through them. As water drips through the cave, it leaves behind mineral deposits, which create the many formations within the cave. Uh, those like spiky things, the stalagmites and the stalactites, like that's, that's how those things uh, were made. It says it said that it took them like a, a thousand years to grow one inch. That's how slow uh, those things grow. And uh, Old Earth, Young Earth Creationists, you can fight about that later in the parking lot, right? Uh, there you go. Uh, continuing, below the caverns, new cavities are, are being formed by the action of groundwater, just as the old ones were formed. The shaping of the park will continue forever. Uh, first of all, yes, this is a picture that I took on sabbatical, knowing full well I would use it as a sermon illustration uh, at some point. I'm very sorry. Uh, the second thing is that that the park takes that like creative forming action very seriously. Like for them, the water is what gets to make the caves whatever they've been, whatever they are today, and whatever they might be down the road. They take great care to make sure uh, that that doesn't change. Before you go down into the cave, they tell you to not touch anything. Like don't touch the rocks, don't touch the walls, uh, and especially don't touch the, the stalagmites and the stalactites because as soon as you do, the oils from your hands, they, they will make the water and all the minerals that are in the water that build up to form those things, it'll make those things just slide right off. They'll stop growing. They don't want human hands to, to stop this work of creation that wasn't done yet. And, and maybe that might like not ever be done just because we couldn't help ourselves. Right, they're cool. They look cool and slimy, and you want to feel what they feel like. And, and, and sometimes, like, we just, we can't help ourselves. We, we took two five-year-old twin boys down there. Trust me. Like, we can't help ourselves sometimes, but to, like, touch stuff that we shouldn't touch. And that's true when it comes to cool rocks, all right? And that's true when it comes to people, to you, right, to, to your hopes and your dreams, your conflicts and your fears. It's really easy when we look around at a cave to think, oh man, like I just want to do this. I want to go here. I want to dig deeper here. Maybe we could bring in like the ch chisels and the pickaxes and the dynamite or whatever and, and try to go down and, and make it what we think it should be, forgetting that the thing that we're standing in like wasn't made by human hands in the first place. We received it. Something else or someone else made it. And in our own lives, we don't want to wait a thousand years to grow an inch. Personal growth, church growth, whatever. Like we want the results right now. We want our problem fixed 
now. If there's a threat that we feel like is happening in our life, we want it gone. If there's conflict, we want it solved, and we want it solved our way. We want to grow our way. We want to see stuff fixed our way, and we're not always willing to let God do his work in his way towards his ends. We'd rather put our hands on his stuff and try to do it ourselves in our way. And while that might work for a season, even for a very long time, it will not pan out at, at, in the end. And it's at that kind of an end that we actually find God's people this morning in our place here uh, in Hosea. They have done things their way, and we get to learn this morning. The main idea is that letting God do his work, his way, actually really does lead to life. So we'll tee that up together by looking at uh, the first three verses this morning. So if you look at Hosea 8, 1 through 3, and this is how our chapter begins. He says, Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, we know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. Israel's uh, found themselves in a way that does not lead to life. All right, the picture here is like a scene that, that opens up uh, with a, maybe a guy that's like waking up in the desert. He's laying on his back and he's looking up at the sky and the only thing cutting in and out of the sun above are just vultures circling ahead, waiting to just swoop down and, and just eat him up. And God's people have gotten themselves here. They've put themselves on a silver platter because they decided to do things their way. They transgressed the covenant, right? Their agreement with God on how they would live in the world. And they had an excuse. They had excuses. Like there was, there was civil war. Enemies were knocking on their doorstep. And so, of course, they're not going to open their Bibles. Right? They, they, they went outside God's law, but only so they could figure out the most practical and effective thing to do in the moment for their own protection, for their own nation building. And, and to be clear, they never stopped proclaiming God, right? And yet here they are, as good as dead. And God's response isn't just like, well, like you broke these random rules and so now you gotta pay. Right, there, there really are consequences for sinning against God. Like the wages of sin is death, that's true, but, but rejecting the law is more than that. Those random rules this agreement, this covenant, they weren't random. They were good. God gave them those rules to lead them into life, into goodness, right? Maybe not the flashiest life, maybe not the most efficient life or practical life. It would not uh, help them keep up with the Joneses, right, in every way, shape, or form, but, but they'd be good with one another. They'd be good with their neighbors. They know how to deal well even with their enemies. They know how to, how to be good and do good with the Lord, <clears throat> Obeying the law wasn't just to avoid making God angry. That's how they thrived. It's how they flourished. Following the Lord hasn't just like kept them out of trouble. God has worked through their faithfulness to be their hero in war, their provider in the desert. But the text says that they have spurned that. They didn't just reject God's rules. They rejected his goodness. And despite what you might think like, those two things are one and the same. And so there's something simple but like very important here, like in this passage, because it tees up the foundation for not just the sermon, but it tees up the foundation for discipleship in general, that God's ways are good. 
Like God's commands for your life are good and they are for your good. His ways aren't bad, they're beautiful. A community built on honesty and transparency, building one another up, respecting each other's stuff, being content and not jealous, celebrating who we are and what other people have, not bloodthirsty, but just, generous, hospitable. That's a community that will thrive and that's, that is God's law lived out among God's people. His ways are good. But sometimes we just can't help ourselves but mess up a good thing. There was a, another sign on the way down to the caves that we toured. Um, there's a picture of that up there. Uh, just as you're about to enter, um, it's a poem from uh, G.W. Hoover. Uh, it says this, the glory, this glory of nature awaits you, hid in the depth of the earth. Take care of God's awesome handiwork and preserve for others its worth. First of all, I just love a nice little quick pithy poem. But man, like God's people are, are called to do things. We're called to advance the kingdom. We're called to build the church to all that stuff about on earth as it is in heaven. We're called to do that. But part of our doing is actually preserving the handiwork of God, both what he has already built and the good ways through which he has built those things through the faithfulness of his people as they waited and they listened and they moved at his pace, at his speed, at his command, dependent on his creative action in our lives and in the world around us. Sometimes the work that we have is to restrain ourselves from innovating God out of the picture and replacing his hands with our own. And that restraint, like sometimes people will call that impractical, they'll call it inefficient, stupid, bigoted, archaic, whatever. Some, some call it faith. Some call it humility. Someone call it obedience to do what God says, even when there is a, a better, faster, bigger, easier way of getting results. If there's anything beautiful about God's handiwork that we want to last, then just like in the caves, part of our work is preservation. It's resisting the urge in here to carve our own path out there because our biggest challenge in following the Lord is not out there. It isn't the enemies on our doorstep. It's not the problems that we face in daily life. It's not the commands uh, of God themselves. If you've got beef, if you have beef with God over how you think he wants you to live, the bad news isn't that some circumstances can, like, can keep you from being obedient because they can't. It's not that he might call you out and, and call you to change in some way. The bad news is that you wonder whether or not he's right. The bad news is that you think that you might know better and if you want to know how that'll go, just ask the vultures that are circling overhead of Israel. God's people see the writing on the wall, and now they're calling out to God. Like, as, as a last resort, as the last resort that they basically treated him as for a long time. My God, hey, it's us. It's, it's Israel. Remember us? Hey, like, we know you. You want to help us out a little bit? And, and what God says is that they can blow trumpets all day long. Rally the troops, call for backup, send in the choppers, like whatever, but it's too late. The enemy's not going away. On the food chain, they have made themselves the prey. And so our question this morning that we should all be asking ourselves is how do we not let ourselves become what they are? 
and we hope that we can learn from some of their mistakes. And this morning, that will come from realizing just a few simple overlapping realities that are true back then. And that's that, that we all follow what leads us, that we are what we sow, and that we become what we worship. All right, so let's look at that first one. Uh, we'll look at Hosea 8, 4 through 6. It says this, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and their gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I've spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it's from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Point one is that you follow what leads you. Uh, imagine, uh, if you can, I know it might be a stretch, but imagine a nation uh, split apart by two big sides, both of which think that they should rightfully be in charge, that they know what's best, that they stand for what their nation's really about. And, and all of this is happening on a, a global stage where there is, there's moving pieces and there's rival powers and there's some chaos brewing all over the place. And you live in this country, this place is your home, and you're not just being kind of like forced to take a side. Chances are like you're already on a side whether you know it or not. How do you make heads or tails of things? This is not just a snapshot of life. Like in the last few years in our particular country, it's a snapshot of where God's people find themselves here in Hosea, literally split in half by civil war. Separate borders, separate capitals, separate kings, separate centers of worship, all surrounded by a world that is in its own conflict. And it's now knocking on their borders. The stakes are high, the tensions are high. And so two questions, you gotta answer two questions. Number one, what's a win look like here? What's that look like? And number two, man, what are we willing to do to get it? And people may not ask those questions up front, but those are the questions that people are asking and answering. And who answers those questions for those people? That makes all the difference in the world. Where does Israel turn? They prop up pragmatic leaders. They throw their weight behind candidates or kings and princes. They'll make the tough calls, help them prosper, and they bring spirituality into it. Except that they, they spin off their own version that's all about the, the country's prosperity. And they make out a, a God of the very things of prosperity. They make their God out of those things, out of gold and silver, in hopes that if they appease the kings and they appease this like cow-shaped God, that they will get to live with plenty. And the Lord looks at what they've put in place and he says like, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but no one asked me if that was a good idea. It looks like a very talented sculptor like made that nice little golden calf over there. But that's not mine. And that is certainly, they met the challenges of the day with plans and whiteboards and spiritual stuff uh, to point to. And they, they had it all thought out. They pulled it off. And it had absolutely nothing to do with the Lord. That's the worst nightmare for me. And I know the leaders of this church as well, that we could think and pray and study and execute, like, and only to find out at the end that it's just all hollow. It's a product of our own handiwork, right? That, that just reflects just us or, or the values of the world and not the one who made us or who made the world. Whoever they asked those questions to, 
Like, what's a win, and, and what are we willing to do to get it? Like, the Lord was not the one they asked, and the Lord certainly wasn't the one who answered, and that's revealing. It's revealing. We can say all day long, just like Israel, my God, hey, hey, we know you, right? But whether that means anything will show up in the way that we actually live our life and in who or what we let shape our life. The leaders that we support, the caricatures of God that we portray, the values that we talk about, the values that we don't talk about, all those things, they do shape what's around us, the world around us. But more than that, they reveal the shape that our own lives have already taken, how we've already been shaped. What we make with our hands shows what's at work in making us. There are, and there should be, and there always will be multiple voices that speak into our lives that we hear. That, that's part of trying to be informed and well-rounded. That's part of living in community and striving for unity, seeking to understand, all of that stuff. But, but all of us give certain voices more sway in our lives than others. And ultimately, one voice is going to drown out all of the others. Like when you hear conflicting information, when you hear conflicting information, different takes on things, whoever automatically wins out there, your mind on something, that is who is leading you. Because we don't do that very easily, do we? We're all being led by something. We are all followers. And God gives us two options of what we're following at the end of the day. It is either the creator or it is something that he created. It's either the one who made everything or it's something that's been made. Or in the case of the golden calf, it's something that's been made by someone who's been made, right? Which one do you think that you're led by? Which one do you want to be led by? You may not have ever heard of uh, Janie Tinklenberg. Anyone? Oh, good. It's a good story then. Uh, but you've probably heard about what she did. Uh, last I heard, she was a consultant for uh, and a coach for like a leadership organization in Columbus. But back in the 90s, she was a youth group leader at Calvary Reformed Baptist Church in Holland, Michigan. And she had read a book by a guy named Charles Sheldon. And a phrase from that book uh, caught her attention so much that she wanted it to be like the, the drumbeat of, of her students in her youth group. Uh, Charles Spurgeon had used the phrase. It was a, it was a title of a hymn, uh, and still is, presumably. Uh, it wasn't new or novel, like the idea, but it was profound. And since friendship bracelets were like all the rage back then, she made a batch of bracelets with just the first letter of each word in the phrase, WWJD. What would Jesus do? Some of you that like just went over your head, for a lot of us, yeah, I get it. It's super corny. And yet, call it corny, but let's be real. How often does that question decide what you will do? Listen to cryptocurrency podcasts, all right? Like, listen to various, various news sources, okay? Uh, follow bloggers, follow influencers about hobbies and stuff. Have favorites, like have people that you, that like whose wisdom you trust and perspectives that you value. But when it comes to answering the question of what a win in any given moment looks like and how you go about doing that, man, Jesus gets to have the final say there. When it comes to claims of what's true, what should be the most important stuff in your life, ethics and morals, how we should treat our friends, how we should treat our enemies, 
character and what that is and why that matters, why we're here, who God is and what he's all about and how we might know and enjoy him. The only good and right and unbiased voice that should be the loudest in our lives should be the Lord. It doesn't matter if if Dave Ramsey or Tim Keller or John MacArthur said one thing. If the Lord disagrees with them, you should too. If your boss or if your young life leader or your, your pastor or your president of the United States like says to do or support something that goes against what would Jesus do, then don't. Like you're responsible for who you follow. Like leaders get hammered throughout the Bible all the time and they should. Like someone once said, with great power comes great responsibility. That's a thing I heard somewhere. When a leader's off, it doesn't just mess with their life. It messes with everyone else who is calling out. It's the people who installed the kings, who appointed the princes and the leaders that he's lamenting when he asks, how long will they be incapable of innocence? You can't plead not guilty just because you're not the guy in charge. I was just following orders. That won't, that won't hold up in court. Saying I didn't know better isn't an excuse when you, when you have a Bible on your phone, right? A million churches that you could be a part of. You have Google for crying out loud, right? And better than a, a bracelet around your wrist, you have the Holy Spirit within you. Literally nothing can get in the way of you following Jesus. A monarchy, a democracy, tyrants, terrible bosses, right? The, the presence or absence of someone or some kind of person in your life, Jesus calls you to follow him where you are and you can. You follow what leads you. And when we create our own leaders, when we create our own gods, we also create our own destruction because the Lord's way is the only way that leads to life in the end. So who's defining what life should look like? For you, when things are put in their proper place, who's telling you the, the plan to get there? Is it Jesus through the scriptures, through prayer? Is it your, your pastors, leaders, other members of, of your local church that you know personally who are trying to follow Jesus along with you? Or is it random people on the internet? Experts in the field, leaders in culture wars, someone who got a book deal or is up for re-election sometime soon, are the prominent voices in your life recognized by God as authoritative in his kingdom? Or are they just made of gold and silver and the stuff that the world already likes? That's point one. Next point, let's look at Hosea 8, 7 through 10. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. Uh, the standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel, for they've gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Our second point this morning is that, that you are what you sow. Floyd Collins was a guy in Kentucky in the early 1900s, and his, his family lived on a farm near Mammoth Caves. And uh, Floyd and his dad, Lee, uh, they disagreed about like, the best way to make more money for the family. They were trying to make ends meet and needed to do some hustling. All right? And so Floyd's dad just wanted to focus on the farm. That's what he wanted to do. Just, just sow more seed, grow more crops, uh, sell more stuff, just do what they'd kind of always done. But Floyd thought that their golden goose was, was in a cave, 
Floyd would travel through a, 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 the mouth of a cave on their property. He would go down a chute until he got uh, about 100 feet in to an opening called the turnaround room, which is called the turnaround room because any sane person at that moment would turn around and go back the other way because then you would have to squeeze through something called the squeeze, a nine-inch tall slit that you would have to like inhale, uh, exhale, I guess, really, and squeeze yourself and contort to get through only to get on the other side where you would rappel down a 10-foot drop. And at the bottom of that 10-foot drop, that's where Floyd thought the money was because on the other side of a little gap that he was chiseling away, it opened up into this magnificent cave. And he just knew that if he could get the public down there, like tourists would flock. And it would make that farm worth more than anything that could ever be reaped from the soil. So instead of farming... And doing what they had always done, slowly, patiently over time, he dug. Like Shawshank Redemption style, this guy dug himself for months in that cave. And I won't spoil what happens. It is a wild story. Uh, But a bunch of people do show up. Folks do come down. There is a carnival that sets up outside. The farm becomes famous and it makes a lot of money. But Floyd's family sees a fraction of that money. And Floyd sees none of it. Others get rich. Like even though he was the one who put all the work in and even though he ended up getting stuck down there in that cave, lantern broken, a pinned leg, writhing under fallen rock for 14 days straight on his back where he was literally just digging for his family's future. I will not tell you what happens. You have to look for it yourself. I told you to watch it, Graham. I don't know what it looks like to sow wind and reap a whirlwind, but I, like, I can't imagine Floyd scooping out rocks a bucket at a time only to reap a cave-in, right? I don't know if this is how you sow wind. Like, I don't know, but, but I can imagine a cave-in happening. Both, both of those things, they start small, low cost, high hopes, but what comes back is just a total disaster. And, and some of us know what it's like, like to, to leave behind what's safe, what you, what you already have and, and swipe a credit card or start a venture, or make a bet that seems manageable, and then not be able to pay the bank, or the bookie, or whatever. We put all of our eggs in one basket, only to watch that basket just like go up in flames, right? And all that's left behind is a mess, and a big mess is what God's people had gotten themselves into. Because in trying to make their half of the country strong, Israel, called Ephraim here, uh, in the text starts making deals with foreign nations, like a, a wild donkey wandering by itself. Hosea uh, continues, he continues this theme of infidelity. He says that they've hired lovers. The CSB, a different translation, says that Israel's paid for love. They've sought peace. They've asked for reinforcements, not with prayers to the Lord, with, but with a, a bag of money for their enemies. But instead of getting to like rest in this new border security that they have, they're writhing under the tribute and if you don't know what tribute is, uh, it's like gangs, like, like mafia stuff in movies when they hit up local like mom and pop sh- uh, shops and they make the owners like pay for protection. Like that's kind of what protection is like. It's like that. Israel's leaders now have to pay tribute, right, to those other nations for protection. But like, but like Floyd Collins writhing under the rocks that he thought he could manage, like that he thought would lead somewhere good, Israel's leaders are now writhing under that tribute. And no doubt, like, they pass the costs on to their people. Like, higher taxes, 
Again, the CSB says it differently. They say that the people, the people will decrease in number under the burden of the king and the leaders. That's what the CSB says. So, so their plan to stay strong actually causes them to shrink. Their way did not lead to thriving. It led to dying. And it's not even worth it for those who are left because the Lord says that there's nothing worth protecting anymore. There is nothing useful for him or for them or for the nations. What could they offer the world now? They are just like everybody else. That Nothing sets them apart. Their country is barren, literally. It's like no heads of grain growing to use for flour and to use for food. And even if there were, they wouldn't get to enjoy it. Right? Again, just like Floyd Collins' family. Like others would swallow up anything that's left and, and worse than that, worse than barren fields and worse than barren bank accounts or whatever, they are spiritually barren. God's people themselves had been swallowed up. Not might be swallowed up, not would be swallowed up. Israel is swallowed up. That's what the text says. In other words, they're sold out. All those uh, like big AAA video games you guys like or the, the summer blockbusters and endless Marvel like CGI fest that we love watching or whatever. A ton of stuff has come out in these last few years about those industries, about what they call crunch. Where developers or studios or whatever, they require folks to work crazy hours, seven days a week just to churn out another sequel, another episode on time, get all the green light, the next installment, and just go about doing everything all over again in a never-ending, just content fest. Because they're worried about being swallowed up from the outside, edged, edged out of awards, edged out of sales and box office stuff or streaming numbers or whatever, but the real problem is the one that's like easiest to ignore for a time. The temptation to do all of this to the detriment of their own people, their own talent, like just cannibalizing themselves by burning out their folks. And at some point, like if they don't change, that doesn't stop, the people are gone, right? The, the product suffers and they get called to the carpet like exposés and stuff and they lose or at least they, they should lose anyway. I don't think Disney is going anywhere anytime soon. Those studios will be around for a long time. But at what cost? What are they actually offering the world? Don't look at the trailers. Don't look at the reviews. Look at the employees. Look at the contractors who work for them. That's what they're actually offering the world. That's what they're actually putting out there. The, the shiny content Right? That comes first in lots of places, but in the Lord's economy, it's the people who come first. Here's the meat of this. When, when you're worried about being swallowed up from the outside, it is really easy to let yourself be swallowed up from within. God's beef with his people wasn't that they hadn't secured the borders. It was not that they hadn't won an arms race or, or didn't have enough money in the treasury to pay tribute or whatever. It was, it was with who they had let themselves become. That was his beef with them. They become useless, useless in a mission of bringing news of God's good ways, his good promises, his good works to the nations because they weren't living as if it were good themselves. They were worried about foreign invaders while refusing to heal their own civil conflict. And they put all of their resources towards defending barren of the fruit of the Spirit, abandoning the slow and steady work of planting gospel seeds, staying steadfast, working through stuff. Because if we're honest, like sometimes when the pressure's on, 
We tell ourselves that peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control of the Holy Spirit. When there are problems at our doorstep or in our house, it's time for something that just works. And there's the lie. That under the guise of caring about God and his word and his people and, and getting stuff done, we abandon what has always been unique, the unique contribution of God's people to the world. Not a heavier hand, not a, a mightier sword or a shinier look or an easier experience, but pure and holy worship of the one true God. Together, in covenant community, loving the Lord, loving one another, loving neighbors, loving enemies, in stark contrast to the rest of the world. The church does not have to live in survival mode. It's not going to be saved by bullets and ballots or bags of money. It's already been saved. In times of turmoil and conflict, especially internal conflict, are precisely the most important times that we need to remember that our fates are sealed in glory. America, like American church, lives in a constant state of being told what to fear today, what we should be outraged about right now, and, and who the villain of the week is, and whether or not you, like you bite that, like look uh, hook, line, and sinker, the ends, they never justify the means. And that's not a prison. That's a home that we get to live in now that our end has already been written, right? God's people are justified by grace and by mercy alone. And so we are free to be nothing but faithful because we couldn't make the end of our story any better if we tried. Outside, and the harvest is plentiful. But inside the kingdom, how we treat one another, two sides of a split kingdom, Floyd Collins and his dad, Marvel and its contractors, you and the members of this church, or your classmates, or your coworkers, your family. Show me what you're sowing into the people around you, and I'll tell you what you're living off of. What do others reap from their relationship with you? Is it, is it the good news of God's faithfulness in the gospel? Are humility and repentance and reconciliation markers of long-lasting, steadfast relationships in your life? Is that where you invest your time? Or do you reap whirlwinds in your relationships? Are you busy tending the fields of what others think of you? Are you more interested in, in, in bottom lines or in who you are becoming? We don't just reap what we sow, although that's true, but we are what we sow. And if we are good news people planted in the soil of the gospel, that means we get to sow a lot of good news. We'll close out with our last bit here. Hosea 8, 11 through 14. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write to him, uh, for him, my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour her strongholds. Our third point this morning is that we become what we worship. Uh, during our cave tour, something caught our uh, attention. We were walking around. Uh, pants. <laughs> Throw up the next slide there. I don't know if you can tell what that is. 
That's a fern. And you're like, okay, who, who cares? It's a fern growing in a cave. Little ingredients for plant life. Sunlight, right? And so like, I mean, like why, why who, who planted a fern here? Like, where did that come from? It's not like there's lush gardens down uh, in these cavern systems or whatever. Those LEDs, there's old lanterns. Like, what, so, like, Kel and I asked, like, the, the, the tour guide, hey, what's the deal with this house plant that's hanging out in a cave? We can't get him to stay alive in our house, like, half the time. How is this thriving? And so, what he said, it's like, I don't know. It's like, there was probably a seed that hitched a ride on a bat that flew in and fell off and like somehow found its way in the cave, found its way in a spot with enough moisture and room to grow and found a way to exist without sunlight. At some point, it doesn't make any sense. And yet here it is. Life finds a way, right? Except that we know that life doesn't just find a way. Like especially in places like that, God makes a way for life, and sometimes that way makes absolutely no sense. And lots of times, most of the time, maybe, it makes a lot more sense to take matters into our own hands, to set the voice of Jesus aside, to invite others to come alongside of him, even, and just to do your own thing. Because if we're honest, like setting Jesus aside can can lead to results. It really can. Like, bear with me for a moment, but but do you know that sinning sometimes works? Like, it gets you what you think you want. Like, you know building a, a life or a church or a career or a family with the tools of the world, like, that'll give you a better shot at building worldly success, right? Like, it will. There was a stretch of time where it seemed like I heard a lot of Christians talk about non-Christians as if they just had to be the most miserable, unfruitful, unfulfilled people in the world just because they didn't have Jesus. And, and it made me wonder if these guys knew anybody who didn't know Jesus. But, uh, like, I know some pretty miserable Christians like, who are miserable by their own volition, like, on their own choice? And, and secondly, like, I know some pretty great, happy, wonderful human beings who adamantly oppose Jesus. Like, life's, you know this, and maybe you don't, but, but people who claim Christ, but end up, like, veering, even just veering ever so slightly away from the truth of the commands of the Bible, they don't, they don't usually do it just for fun. They usually have reasons for doing that. And lots of times those reasons yield results in their life. The Israelites, they veered and they veered hard, man. But, but when they did, they built palaces. They built palaces. They built altars and fortified cities and strongholds. You would be amazed at their handiwork. I know folks who, after leaving the church, they dine like kings. They vacation like bosses, right? They have a much healthier work-life balance. I know folks who have pursued music careers and book deals all apart from Jesus. Impressive stuff that maybe not many of us in this room will ever get to, to do in our lifetime. But God's not impressed because it's not his handiwork. Some of my favorite people are people who are just unimpressed by most things. Like bigger, better, audacious goals you can put on a website, clickbaity headlines. Like people who just simply ask, where's God in all this stuff? Show me what he's making that you can't make with your own hands and a laptop. Show me where that is. 
Like, and you can ask those questions of folks outside the church all day long, but it is more important to ask those questions to us inside the church who might claim to be God's people, who might live among God's people, labor with God's people, but whose heart may have veered and veered so ever so slightly maybe even, but is busy building a church or a ministry or a family or a life with a bunch of stuff that God is not impressed by, even though his name might be all over it. This is Israel's situation. God says he could write tens of thousands of his commands, his good ways, right, that describe what a thriving community of love and justice and mercy and holiness, all those things look like. And while Israel could probably tell you how many square feet their altars are, right, how many people that uh, they can fit into their strongholds, how many sacrifices they were able to make last week, God's words would seem strange to them. They might think it's quaint, cute, fine if that's your thing but it would not be impressive to them in the least. They've forgotten him. They've forgotten God. They've forgotten his word. They've forgotten what matters. They've forgotten that we will not be known by what we accomplish in the end. We'll be known by what we worshiped along the way. It's easier to see it, and it's easier to call out when they're literally building altars of sin, right? Like it says, but when the band's big, and the preaching is slick, and the building is nice, and numbers are up, you would be surprised what you would let slip by. It all comes back to that definition of what a win is, and what it looks like to get one. Whatever that definition, like it, it didn't include the Lord being enough. It didn't include a, a dependence on his word. It didn't include a, a desire for holiness and to walk in his good ways, and they embodied that not just in their buildings and not just in their best practices, but in themselves, Hosea says that they not only built altars for sin because of what they tolerated, because of what they pursued, because of what they hitched their life to, what they were impressed by, and they were no longer impressed by God and his slow and steady and practical ways. They became what they worshiped. And it wasn't, hey, look at our God. It was, look at our palaces. How does that happen? Because that sounds crazy. They forgot who God is. Show me a Christian who thinks the ends justify the means, and I will show you a God made of gold and silver who actually would be okay with making altars of sinning if it meant getting something done, keeping something safe, advancing some cause. But that's not the God that we worship. God does not compromise his holiness to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't cut corners. And he will never ask you to do the same. He will never be impressed by you if you do the same. I don't care how many palaces you build. Sometimes it feels like he is slow and he is inefficient and you are literally growing one inch every thousand years. He doesn't tell us why when it seems like there are better, easier, more practical options, but he is committed to being good and to doing good in his good ways, and they will lead to life if we simply let him be the one who leads us and who sows into us day after day. You can tell what you're worshiping by what you're impressed by. The stuff that you point to, to prove that your faith, or maybe somebody else's faith is solid, like not cities or strongholds, but maybe how many times you've read your Bible this week how much you know, how hard you pray, how you handled a situation, how many times you did or, or didn't sin this week. 
What thread, when it's pulled, will keep you up at night and make you feel like a hypocrite? To be strong in the Lord. And what, when you see it, causes your heart to sing? Because when you see it, you just know that you're doing great. Whatever that is, that's what you worship. And that's what you'll become. If the God you worship is desperate and constantly needing to be pleased, then you will be too. If your God is demanding, requiring a a standard of obedience that you're constantly following, finicky and wishy-washy, right, and committed to whatever you feel like in the moment, then then you're going to be like that too. 99% of the time, if the God that you're worshiping isn't the God of the Bible, as he has revealed himself and his tens of thousands of words, then you're just probably worshiping your own list of tens of thousands of words, of do's and don'ts, values and goals and what you want and ways of doing things that you fashioned in your own image and you have called it God. But the Lord says, I didn't make that. That is not me. Ben, you can come on up. I said at the beginning that that the question that we get to ask ourselves is how do we not become like the Israelites? And that begins by realizing that we are exactly like the Israelites. That's where it starts. We all like to do things our own way, even when those ways lead to destruction in the end. And yet the good news isn't that we become what we worship. That's not the good news, first and foremost. It's it's that the one that we should worship has become like us. That is the good news. Despite us rejecting him, God, our creator, he became like us. Jesus left his throne in heaven and he took on flesh and blood. And though he lived a life of total obedience, altars of sinning transformed into temples of the Holy Spirit, made clean and pure and perfect, not because we live that way or try hard to live that way, but because he already did live that way in our place as a substitute for us. Who we should worship became like us. The one who should lead us became the perfect follower on our behalf. The person that we should point people to became the good news that we needed. And because the God that we get to worship this morning isn't desperate, he's not wishy-washy, but he is a live, living, just, gracious, merciful God, we not only get to live under all of those things, but we're free to stumble forward together with him as we become those things, as the people of God together, one inch at a time as a testimony to his handiwork and to his glory. And one of the ways that we literally do come forward and do that every single week as a church, to remember these things and to declare those things is through communion. It's through the table that he invites us to every single week. He doesn't shame us or guilt us, look at us and say, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. He invites us to a table where we get to remember that, that that bread that's there, those crackers that are there, it is Jesus' body that was broken. Not us, along with our idols, but Jesus' body that was broken for us. It was his blood that was shed, not our own, as a sacrifice that would be accepted by the Lord on our behalf so we could have life and peace with God forever. If you're a believer here this morning, this table is open for you. Reflect, repent, respond, and then come up and rejoice in the goodness of God as you take this this morning. If you're not a believer, that's not for you, but we would love to chat with you today about that.
Uh, if you would like to pray, welcome to sit in your seats. There'll be some questions up on the screen. There'll be some folks back there uh, by the red tree to pray with you. Uh, my wife and I will be at that uh, back wall to pray with you as well. We would love to chat with you about anything uh, to worship as the band leads us in song. Take these next few minutes and respond as you will. <laughs> 